Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 40. I want to begin by reading you a a series of advertisements that uh, reportedly appeared in a newspaper. I I don't know if it actually did or not, but it makes a good illustration. So I I can't verify the historicity of it, but um, it's a good story anyway. On Monday, this is what appeared in the paper. The Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale. Telephone 626-1313 after 7 p.m. And ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him. Cheap. (laughs) Tuesday. We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The ad should have read, Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale. Cheap. Telephone 626-1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> Wednesday, the Reverend A.J. Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. Should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale, cheap. Telephone 626-1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who loves with him. Thursday. Please take notice that I, the Reverend A.J. Jones, have no color TV set for sale. I've smashed it. (laughs) Don't call 626-1313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was until yesterday. My housekeeper. Friday. Wanted. Housekeeper. (laughs) Telephone 626-1313. Have you ever said anything or done anything that caused you to have regret? Probably so, right? It happens to us. We just let something slip or we do something. We say to ourselves, ah, if only, if only I hadn't said that, if only I hadn't done, done that. Now I'm living with the consequences of my action, especially when we sin and then have to live with the consequences. We wonder, God, will you ever put the pieces back together of my life? God, can you put the pieces back together? That's the situation of the people in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 marks the major transition. It's the major turning point in the book of Isaiah. No longer is Isaiah speaking to people in his own day. Isaiah is speaking to people in the future. And he's speaking to them as if what they're experiencing has already come to pass because it is God's prediction and it is certain it will happen. So he shifts, not talking to the people in his own day, but talking to the people in the future. And he's talking to a people who are living with the consequences of sin. Remember how chapter 39 ended, verse 6 says, Behold, days are coming, when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away. They will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. And there, there were, there, he, he experienced peace and truth in his own days. But for the generations after him, who are now either living in Babylon or the small remnant that is left in the land of Israel, who are poor and destitute, they are experiencing the consequences for some of the older ones of their own sin, 
For the younger ones, they're living with the consequences of their parents' sin or their grandparents' sin, and they're wondering to themselves, God, have you forgotten about us? God, do you still care about us? And if you care, God, is it, is it even possible that you could still fulfill your promises to us? We are in exile. How could it be that a people would be brought back to their own nation? Or God, we're living in Jerusalem and the walls are torn down and the temple is destroyed and we can't worship and we're not safe and we can't even hardly make a living for ourselves. God, is it possible? And maybe even more important, God, do you still want to use us? Do you want to make us a a bright light, a city on the hill? Do you want to use us as your servants to proclaim your greatness to the nations? Or has our sin been so great that you've set us aside? And God answers his people in Isaiah chapter 40 in the most powerful of ways. And he says, no, I have not forgotten you. It is both my desire and it is within my power to restore your lives. I want you to read with me in chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The answer to the question, is God willing to restore us, is absolutely yes. God says absolutely yes. And he calls out a word of comfort, which is not to sympathize, but a word of encouragement to breathe life back into them. And he says it twice. It's a command. Comfort, oh comfort my people. And he turns to Jerusalem specifically, and she's pictured here as a woman who is in anguish. And it says literally, speak to her heart. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem, my bride, and bring her a word of encouragement. And the word of encouragement is this, the discipline is over and it's time for restoration to begin. Now remember, Isaiah is speaking to a people Yet in the future, the discipline that will come upon them for their sins and their parents' sins is absolutely certain. But the discipline, he says, will end because the final word for God's people is not discipline. It is his blessing and his restoration. And so he speaks a word of comfort to them. How is he going to do that? Verse 3, how will he restore them? A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God pictures himself as far off from his people. Maybe he's back on Mount Sinai, but he's at a great distance from Jerusalem. And there are many barriers in between. There are mountains and valleys. And he says, roll out the red carpet. Knock down the tops of the hills. Fill in the valleys. Get ready for the presence of the Lord because it is the presence of the Lord that is salvation for us. Remember last week we talked about this briefly. The ideal experience for men and women is pictured in the Garden of Eden. Before the fall. That is 
man and woman walking in perfect fellowship with one another and in perfect fellowship with God. They're listening to his voice and they're understanding what he's saying. They're speaking back to him. They're having perfect communion with him. The garden is what we were made for. And so all of biblical history you see is movement back toward the garden. In the book of Ezekiel, which is written a little bit later, Ezekiel writes to a people who are in exile. And he has a vision just before they're going into exile, and it's a vision of the glory of, the, of God departing from the temple. That's what the name Ichabod means. It means the glory is gone, no glory. And Ezekiel sees God's glory moving out from the temple and out of Jerusalem, and it's gone, and the people are weeping. Because the presence of God is gone. But then he has another vision in which the presence of God moves back into Jerusalem. And that's a picture of idealized life. God living and dwelling with his people in perfect fellowship. So the book of Revelation concludes like this. Chapter 21, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them. Okay, God's temple or God's palace is in the midst of his people. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is the things that pertained to life under sin are gone. And now God has come back to dwell among his people. And so Isaiah reminds these people who are living with the consequences of sin, God's presence will return. God is coming from a distant place. Get ready. Verse 6. He continues his encouragement. The voice says, call out. Then he answered. A second voice answered and said, what shall I call out? First voice responded, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people... Our grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's one that you should memorize. In this short section, what he is picturing is what is known as the uh, Hamsin. It's a, a dry, dusty, hot wind that blows across the Middle East, usually late April into May. This is a picture of uh, what it looks like in Israel when that wind blows in. This is the same scene on a clear day. When that wind blows in, uh, a lush green field can turn to dust within 48 hours. All that is vibrant and green and luxuriant and growing can be completely destroyed by this hot, dry, dusty wind. And God looks out on his people and he says, you know, really, you're like the grass. When the hot, dry, dusty wind blows in, you're gone like that. That is human nature. Of course, you're unreliable and you're living in the consequences of sin because you are unreliable and you are unfaithful and you're fleeting. You're like grass that the wind just burns up. But I'm not. So the reason I can promise you that you will be restored is because of my character, my faithfulness, my promises to you. 
Let's read verse 6 again. The voice says, call out. Then he answered in discouragement, well, what should I call out? Call out this. All flesh indeed is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever and he has made a promise and God cannot lie and he cannot change his mind and he has promised that he will not forget you and he will restore you no matter how you have failed. Now this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, it may be that you're sitting here and you're saying, None of this really applies to me. If God only knew, the message to you this morning is he does. He knows everything that has transpired in your past. And still he reaches out to you in Jesus Christ and says, I love you and I can restore you. I can remove the debt of your sin and I can come and dwell with you. My spirit will come and reside in you and you will be mine and I will be yours. That is the beautiful message of the gospel. The moment that you believe, God moves you or begins to move you back toward that ideal experience, which is life in fellowship with God. And all that you have to do is say, God, I acknowledge I have failed and the pieces of my life I can't put back together. Please remove the debt of my sin and give me Jesus Christ. The moment that you believe, he does that. He removes the debt and he gives you life that lasts forever. Or maybe you're sitting there as a believer and you say, I guess God does know, but I just can't see how he could put the pieces back together. We can. It may not look exactly like what you were thinking, but God can still, because you have believed in Jesus Christ, restore fellowship, restore intimacy, and use your life. If you still have breath in you, it is God's intention to use you in this world He doesn't want to waste a moment of your experience. Notice what he says to Jerusalem in verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather his lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. The reason that God intends to restore your life is so that you can be a witness. Isaiah chapter 40, God turns to Jerusalem, which was intended to be that city set on a hill, a light among the nations, and he says, lift up your voice. Okay, lift it up. Behold, which means look up. What happens to us when we're discouraged? Where do our eyes go? Everything drops down, doesn't it? We're consumed with the fleeting realities of our circumstances, Overwhelming at the time. You've been with a person who is discouraged, distraught, depressed, in despair, and the countenance has fallen. You ever seen a person who's discouraged make an announcement about something? Pass along their depression, don't they? It's hard to believe them. Isn't it a great thing that the Aggies are ranked 
13th in the nation in baseball right now. Let us celebrate. (laughs) Can't convince you because they're not convinced. What Isaiah is doing for the people right now is he's saying, look up. Okay? Change your perspective. You're consumed with your circumstances, but they're temporary. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Because God is willing and desirous to restore your life. Now, the second section of this beautiful poem is meant to convince the listeners that God is not only willing to restore life to them and to use them in his service, but also he is able to, more than able to. Read with me in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? This is a series of rhetorical questions. The answer to each one of these is absolutely no one but God. Hey, and this section is a wonderful section to memorize. I'd encourage you, you want a good semester project, memorize Isaiah chapter 40. This section lists the attributes of God, not all of them, but some of his most powerful attributes, his attributes of, of infinitude. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, the hills in a pair of scales? This is speaking to God's immensity. God is pictured as a merchant who is weighing out spices or precious metals. And how does he do so? Well, it's as if they're in a small balance to him. Or he lifts, lifts up all of the, the oceans of the world and it's as if he could hold them just in the palm of his hand or reach out and, and stretch the, the span, which is from his thumb to his forefinger, and measure all that is created in nine inches. That's God. He's that big. Is he willing to restore us? Absolutely. Is he able? No question about it. No one else is. God is immense. Verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and and taught him knowledge? Who informed him of the way of understanding? This is speaking to the omniscience of God. And it's a direct attack against the gods of the Babylonians. Chief god in Babylon was Marduk. He was said to be the creator of the universe. But the job was a little bit too big for Marduk, so he had to call in other gods to help him. And what Isaiah is saying is, God didn't need any help. He didn't ask for any counselors. He didn't say, well, I'm not really sure how to create this part of it. No, in fact, he weighed out all of the elements and put them in just the right proportion and created all of the universe. God is all-wise all-knowing. He knows all things past, all things present, all things future, even all things that could be. God knows all. He's omniscient. God is also incomparable. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. The image here is putting a bucket down into a well, and as you're pulling it up, one drop falls. And he says, that's the nations. (laughs) 
They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. You're about to weigh something and you want an accurate balance. And so you go, that's the nations. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. What he's saying is all of the value of the nations is nothing compared to the value of God. Lebanon is known for its cedar forests that were populated with all kinds of animals. And Isaiah says, imagine that you captured all of the animals in the forest and then you cut down all of the trees and you burn the trees and put all the animals on top of them for an offering. He says, that's nothing compared to the value of God. In fact, chapter 40, verse 17 reads like this. All the nations are as nothing in his presence. They are counted as nothing and nothingness to him. (laughs) You really get the point when you read it in Hebrew, don't you? All the nations are as nothing in his presence. They are counted as nothing and nothingness to him. God is incomparable to the nations. He's incomparable to their gods. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. That is, most idols were either very, very small or they were just plated with gold or a small chain hung on them of a valuable metal. Their value is nothing. He who is too impoverished for such an offering has to go out and just find a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. God is incomparable to all the value of the nations and to the value of their gods. See, in ancient Near Eastern thought, the conquering kingdom took over the gods of the conquered kingdom. And so in Assyria or in Babylon, who had conquered kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, they literally had thousands of gods because they absorbed all the gods around them. And God is saying, I'm not like any of those. I'm not an idol. And you can't control me. And we're going to look at that in a few weeks because Isaiah is going to expound upon this message of the futility of idols when compared to the value and the strength of God. He goes on and he says, God is also the transcendent sovereign. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Again, rhetorical questions. He's saying, I can't see how this has escaped your notice. It is he who sits above the circle or the vault of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. So Isaiah is moving from image to image to image of God, and now he's picturing God as one who spreads out the heavens like they're a tent. In other words, as you look up at the dome of the sky, he says, this is like God's tent. It's a vault over the earth. And where is God? Well, God is outside of it because he's transcendent. He's not a part of his creation. He's not like the petty gods of the nations. 
He's outside, and where is he sitting? Well, he's sitting uh, on top of this vault. And as he looks down, what does he see? He sees all of us, and he says, you're like grasshoppers. Okay, even the most powerful rulers among you, he says, like grasshoppers. And every time I read this verse, I can't help but think about Numbers chapter 14. Remember where the spies go into the land? They, God says, go in and check out the land so you can go in and conquer it. The spies go in. Ten of them come back and they give a bad report. The report is this. Well, yes, there is a land flowing with milk and honey. It'd be great to live there. The only problem is there's giants. And in their sight, we're like grasshoppers. And God says in Isaiah 40, actually, from where I sit, you're all grasshoppers. Uh, uh, this week, my kids caught the first grasshopper of the season. And because they have a dad who's a pastor, I can't help but I'm just always seeing these strange associations in all of life. I'm reading this passage, grasshoppers. We caught our first grasshopper of the season. And uh, my son caught it and he, he gave it to it as a gift to my daughter. Before he gave it to her as a gift, he, he pulled the legs off, the back legs. <laughs> Sorry, ladies, but, you know, college gals, if you ever have sons, that's the way it is. That's, that's what you do. They just pull the back legs off so it wouldn't hop away, right? So she had a, she had a pet and, you know, kept, kept it pet. And, you know, that grasshopper, he didn't go anywhere very fast. And as I was watching this whole thing, I thought, wow, God, you look down at the rulers of the earth and you say, pop, pop, you're not going anywhere. As I sit Above the vault of the earth and I look down on all of you, you're like grasshoppers without legs. You're as nothing. God is the transcendent sovereign of all of the universe. Why does he have the right to do that? Because he's the creator of all of the universe. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Again, he says, look up, look up. Okay, and when you look up, what are you going to see? You are going to see the stars in the heavens. And this is a picture of the Milky Way. This is where we live. This is our galaxy. Our solar system inhabits this galaxy. But we're not alone. There are other galaxies in God's created universe. According to current estimates, there are over 100 billion galaxies. Probably somewhere closer to 200 billion galaxies. This is called a sombrero galaxy. There were hundreds of billions of stars within this one galaxy. It's called a pinwheel galaxy. There are, according to estimates, a trillion stars within this galaxy. So imagine if there were just 300 billion stars in each of the 100 billion galaxies. How many stars would there be? Mathematicians here, I'll tell you. Uh, It would be 300 sextillion. That is 300 times 10 to the 23rd. It's a big number, right? Kind of hard to get your mind around it. Let me, let me uh, put it in perspective for you. Imagine that you walked out 
this evening and you, you looked up into the night sky and, and there was the moon, right? A few stars beginning to come out and what you decided to do, looking up at that left-hand corner, you found the darkest spot in the sky. Okay, find the, the absolute darkest spot in the sky. And you have a really good telescope and you decide you're going to zoom in on that darkest spot in the sky. And you're going to focus your attention on a spot that is one-tenth the diameter of the moon. Okay? So the darkest spot in the night sky, one-tenth the diameter of the moon. And you zoom in with this extremely powerful telescope that you have. This is what you would probably see. In the darkest spot in the sky, you would see 10,000 galaxies. Now, if each of those had 500 billion stars, you would be looking at five quadrillion stars in the darkest spot in the sky. Wow. I love um, backpacking. When I was in college, one of my favorite things to do, go out into the wilderness. You don't hear cars and dogs and you don't have any light pollution. You look up into the sky and it was a very humbling thing but an incredible opportunity for worship. God is able. There is nothing in your life that is too big for him to overcome. Notice in verse 27. Isaiah summarizes his entire argument. He says, why do you keep on saying, O Jacob, and continue asserting, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Why do you keep on saying that when you've heard all this? God has not forgotten you. Okay, that's the first question on their mind. Has he forgotten us? Does he still care? Why do you keep on saying my way is hidden from the Lord? Nothing is hidden from him. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. It's their second question. Is God able? Question is answered yes. God is both willing, God is both able. So how do we apply this? First, believe. Okay. Believe. Do you not know, have you not heard? God is able, God is willing. Second, verse 29, he gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Uh, that word wait, is, uh, it's a horrible word. I really hate it, um, especially the connotation that is so passive. But in Hebrew, it comes from a root that means uh, a cord. And I think the idea behind it is to wait on the Lord means to wrap yourself around him. Okay? It's anything but passive. When you look out on your circumstances and you're tempted to, to look down in despair, God says, look up and look at all of my greatness and then wrap yourself around that. Because if you are clinging to a God who does not become weary, then you can endure. On your own? No, you cannot. But if you are wrapping yourself like a cord around a God who is infinite and who is omniscient, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise, who created the ends of the earth and the trillions and trillions and billions and quadrillions of stars, and he actually calls them all by name. He doesn't just number them, but he's actually given them all a name. Not one of them is missing, like a general calling his troops into formation. 
That's the God you wrap yourself around, then you can endure, and then you will not grow weary. This morning as we close, we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate communion, which is an incredible opportunity for us to remind ourselves that God is both willing and able to step into our lives and to repair things. To repair what's been broken because of our sin or the sins of others and to continue to use us in the lives of others. So as the men come forward and they service the elements, I'd like for us just to take a few moments and meditate upon the absolute greatness of God. Once we've been all served, we'll take the elements together. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. So this bread is a reminder of my physical suffering. Let's take the bread together. Same way he took the cup. So this cup is your reminder of my blood that was shed to make payment for your sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, I thank you that you have demonstrated your power in your son, Jesus Christ. That you have demonstrated your power over our greatest enemy, death. And that you've demonstrated your willingness to um, enter into our world and all of the brokenness that has been caused by sin and bring a solution. Father, as we, we wait for that final day of restoration, I pray that you would cause our hearts to more and more cling to you. I pray that uh, in our moments where we're looking at our circumstances that are, that are broken all around us and we're tempted to look down, that even this week you would lift up our eyes maybe even lift up our, lot, our eyes in the evenings to the, to the heavens and we'd be reminded of your immensity, your greatness, your power, your strength, your wisdom and intelligence. And we'd be reminded through that of your ability to work in our lives and to transform us and to use us. For Christ's name we pray. Stand and sing this hymn together. My faith is found Father, we do thank you that you gave us Jesus Christ and demonstrated your power by raising him from the dead. I pray, Father, that you would lift up our hearts this week. I pray, Father, for each person here who maybe even this day is really struggling with discouragement and wondering if you have forgotten. I pray that they would be reminded that that you never forget and that you love your people and that it is your intention to restore and to use us in your plan. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.